it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March 6th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. And we are just so happy, it's Eastern Time, of course, to have you all along during those hours. Or if you can't listen to the entire show as we air, well, we have a podcast as an option as well. It is free. It is on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show.com. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me on those platforms personally at Guy P. Benson. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, and, of course, behind this microphone, weekdays, as I mentioned. Here's the lineup today on the program. Later this hour, Katie Pavlich will be here. Always look forward to chatting with my friend. She will be joining us just about half an hour from now. U.S. Senator Deb Fisher, Republican of Nebraska, making her debut on the show next hour. Looking forward to that. And in our final hour, Josh Krasauer will be here talking presidential politics, among other things. And that's what I want to open with in just a moment. I also just want to tease later on in the show, there's a story that I read over the weekend about COVID restrictions and power dynamics at elite institutions. And this is basically the whistle being blown and sort of the seedy underbelly of an experience being exposed. It happened at one of the most elite law schools in the country, and I was just blown away reading the story. It shouldn't shock and surprise me, given what we've all lived through and what we've all experienced. In fact, I was just at a thing in D.C. earlier where they are still requiring masks. And I walked in, and they looked at me like I was crazy, like there was a panic. "Uh Uh-oh, someone here does not have a mask. Sir, that cannot happen. Like, there are still some people addicted to this stuff. But I think the tyranny, and I don't use that word lightly, the tyranny of what we saw in certain quarters when it came to COVID and mandates and requirements and lording power over people and crushing any sort of dissent, it's something that I'm not willing to just sort of turn the page on just yet. Even though it's in the rearview mirror, it's not that far back in the distance. And I fear that some of the worst people, they would do it all again. Like they got off on this stuff. It cannot happen again, which is why some of these examples remain in my book relevant right now today. So I'll fill you in on those details. I just I read this piece like on the plane. And was just shaking my head. So we'll share you share with you those details coming up. Uh probably in the next hours when we'll get to it. But I mentioned presidential politics. There was sort of a little mini boomlet of headlines yesterday 
when the former governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who was a good governor, Republican governor in a very, very blue state, won a total shocker of an election in 2014, wasn't expected to win, then he did in almost like a mini landslide, stunning the political establishment, the Democratic machine in that state, and then he won, coasted to re-election, very popular in Maryland. And I disagree with him on some stuff. He's to my left ideologically. I think he could have been stronger, for example, on COVID policies. Not asking the guy to be Ron DeSantis, but he could have done better. Overall, though, he's been on this show for Maryland as a Republican. He's about as good as you're going to get in a state like that. And he was widely expected, I would say, to run for president. He had been laying the groundwork and putting all the clues out there that he was going to run. And one of the things that I've been talking about is the dynamic. And I know some people say this time's different. It's not 2016 or 2015 anymore. This time around is different. For various reasons, they might be right. I'm not saying it's an exact, you know, carbon copy parallel, but the dynamic that I've talked about and we'll probably talk about again is if you have a bunch of people stampeding into the race on the Republican side, the person who benefits the most is Donald Trump. So if you're listening to me right now and you're a big Trump fan and you want him to be the nominee again, that's your prerogative. But. I'm not in that camp, right? I've been very open about that. If you are, though, on the Trump train, MAGA, all the way, you should be giddy every single time someone gets into the race. Because if you've got the pie of Republican support being split up, a bunch of little slices all over the place, some bigger than others, but none bigger than, let's say, 35%, which is Trump's built-in chunk of the pie, effectively, at least for now nationally, You don't need a majority. You need a plurality, and Trump would be in the driver's seat. So bigger field, better chance Trump wins the nomination. Smaller field, things start to look a little bit different, which is why it was newsworthy over the weekend when Larry Hogan on Face the Nation made the announcement that he is actually, after all, not going to run for president. Cut 15. I did give it serious consideration. I talked to people everywhere, and I talked to my family, and It was a tough decision, but I've decided that I will not be a candidate for the Republican nomination for president. I didn't want to have a a pileup of a bunch of people fighting. Right now you have, you know, Trump and DeSantis at the top of the field, soaking up all the oxygen, getting all the attention, and then a whole lot of the rest of us in single digits. And uh, the more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up. I mean, hard to argue with that. And rather than saying, and therefore these other people should drop out or not run, Larry Hogan said, I'm not going to do it for this reason. I don't want this giant pileup. So I think he looked realistically at the field or the perspective field and the moment in Republican politics and realized quite rightly that he had no chance. Right? Larry Hogan was not going to be the Republican nominee for president. That is just not meeting the moment of where the electorate is right now. And he got the memo and made this choice, which I think is a good one for him. I respect the reasons that he did it. So then I got to thinking. This was uh, yesterday afternoon. I was like, you know, and I wrote about it today at townhall.com. I had not that long ago, weeks ago, compiled a list of close to two dozen names that were widely discussed as potential 2024 entrants. A lot of them had been heavily 
hinting that they were going to get involved or setting down, setting off down that path or what have you. And I was like, here we go again. All right, in 2016, what was the number? 17 candidates, ultimately. It's like, will there be even more this time? Are those lessons just not going to be learned? You can say, oh, it's different. People will get out sooner. People won't overlook Trump and assume that he'll implode. That'll change. Yeah, but the more people you have in there splitting up that pie, that's just math, right? I'm not saying it's totally insurmountable, but those are just some built-in realities that would accrue to the kind of almost quasi-effective incumbent's advantage, at least, you know, the former president, however you want to frame him and his candidacy. And it occurred to me, Larry Hogan isn't the only one. A number of the names on my list have been scratched off one by one over the last couple of weeks, either very explicitly and publicly or just the word sort of gets out and the whispers around town are actually this person's not going for it after all. So it looks entirely possible like not a single Republican senator is going to run for president after all. And that number alone could have been half a dozen or more. The one potential exception is Tim Scott, South Carolina. I'll tell you, I saw him this past weekend at this event I was at in Florida. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. Very impressive. Connected strongly with the audience. He's got a great message and just a great sunniness and hopefulness about him. So he's actively running around the country deciding whether or not he's going to run. And he looked like someone, at least to my eyes, when I saw him on Saturday, like someone who's running, but I'm not sure, and I'm not sure he's sure just yet. But all these other names, right? Tom Cotton, I think, was the first one to bail. He's like, nope, not going for it. That was months ago. Republican senator from Arkansas. Josh Hawley, Missouri, recently said, I'm out. Rand Paul, who is kind of becoming something of a perennial candidate, he and his dad, the Paul name, he's not going for it. Ted Cruz. Now, what some of these guys have in common is they're up for re-election. Hawley's got to focus on Missouri. Ted Cruz got to focus on Texas. He only won by, what, two, three points last time? He's probably the number one Democratic target in a brutal map for the Democrats in 24. But Ted Cruz not running for president. Rick Scott, who's been running national ads, trying to build his national name and brand a lot. He's up for re-election in Florida. He's just announced that he's going to be traveling to every county in Florida. He's focusing on the re-elect not running for president. There had been some buzz around Marco Rubio. From what I understand, that's not happening. Joni Ernst, I know people were talking about that name. It seems like that's not happening. So with the possible exception of Tim Scott from South Carolina, all of these Republican senators, it seems, at least for now, things can change, caveats, but they seem to be out. So that is a field that is winnowing in the early going in a way that is interesting and to some extent I would say surprising to me. I'm not overly encouraged by it. I'm not like, okay, you know, this is obviously going to be decisively problematic for Trump, but fewer people getting in I think makes it easier for someone else to have a legitimate potential at least opportunity to overcome Trump. 
if that's the goal. For some of you, that's not the goal, obviously. For others, you know, perhaps your loyalties are split. I'm shopping around. I will be as, you know, a primary voter and a conservative. But just a lot of those names seem to be bowing out and declining to run this time. Now you still got, you know, Chris Sununu up in New Hampshire. He certainly sounds like he's very much looking at running. Have we heard from Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas? He was talking about it. I mean, no, with all due respect, no path. But, you know, he could get in. Have we heard anything on this front from Greg Abbott or Christy Noem or Brian Kemp, some of these other Republican governors? I mean, I follow this stuff pretty closely. I ha- Have you? It just seems like people who have either put their own names sort of into the ring for discussion or other people have raised some of these names. It just seems like there's a lot of quiet and silence around it. Keep in mind, the only people in the race are Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. I know Vivek Ramaswamy is too, right, the businessman. Smart guy, interesting guy. I don't think I'm being disrespectful in saying that he's not a legitimate top-tier candidate, right? He's, he's not. So it's really Trump and Haley so far. Who else? Mike Pence. My understanding is Pence is going to run. He said he's still deciding, but all indications are pointing into that direction. I'm not exactly sure what Pence's path would be, what his lane is. The hardcore Trump people hate him. The hardcore anti-Trump people don't like him. I mean, he was the vice president under Trump. A lot of name recognition. His numbers in the national polls, at least, are kind of not terribly impressive. Maybe that changes once he announces and has a campaign. We'll see. Mike Pompeo, former secretary of state, kind of in a holding pattern. Checking a lot of the boxes. I would still say it's probably more likely than not that he runs, but that hasn't been announced. I I wonder what the time sort of frame would or timeline would look like for him. And the big one waiting in the wings, because there are are other names, right? People have mentioned Liz Cheney or Will Hurd. With all, again, respect to people, it's just not happening for them. The big name waiting in the wings is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who, if he runs, probably won't announce until May or June, likely June. The more I see from him, the more I see what he's up to. We can talk to Josh Krasauer about this later on. The more I am convinced that he's going to run. I'm not the only one. Trump seems convinced that he's going to run because he is out there hammering DeSantis every day on Truth Social and elsewhere. There was a story about how Trump is now test driving additional nicknames for DeSantis beyond Ron DeSanctimonious and Ron DeSanctus, which is another one. Apparently, shut down Ron wasn't going to work. Meatball is one we've heard. And then Tiny D is another one that we just found out about. That's very subtle. So in my mind, a few months ago, the list was, I should have mentioned Chris Christie, who seems just, you know, eager to get in and be an attack dog against Trump. He seems like he wants to run. A name like Glenn Youngkin has come up, by the way, in Virginia. 
Governor of Virginia. We talked about some of his very good polling numbers last week. My understanding, what I've been hearing is Yunkin is leaning away from 2024 at this point. So all of a sudden, that long list of two dozen names seems to be contracting and shrinking pretty dramatically. And maybe even a few weeks ago, I'd have put the over-under number at 15 candidates. I'm now thinking more like 10. And it might not be crazy even initially to, to pick the under on 10. Things can change. There's a long way to go. I don't want to make overconfident declarations here. But it does feel like in the last couple of weeks, there's been a change. And that we might see a field at the get-go for the Republican nomination for president in 2024 a, a lot smaller, a lot more manageable than was initially assumed and by some people feared. This interesting stuff, if you're a nerd about this stuff like I am, it's fascinating. And if you're not, you're probably like, all right, guy, take a break. We can get to the next topic after the break. So you're in luck because we have to take that break right now. But I wanted to bring you that, and, and I'll run some of it past Josh K. later on. I'm late. Let's take the break. Just getting started. Brand new week on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. A brief note on the other side of the aisle. I mentioned Larry Hogan on Face the Nation saying he wasn't running for president Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, member of the Senate, of course, he was on Face the Nation, and he was sort of eluding and evading some of the questions. For example, he was asked if he would consider running for president in 2024, and he wouldn't rule it out. I don't know what he's smoking. Does he think he can get elected on the Democratic Party ticket? Are you kidding me? Where they are right now as a party? But he also wouldn't clearly endorse Joe Biden for re-election. He says he's going to wait and see who all the players are. As for his own future, perhaps even in West Virginia, he said he's not going to make that decision until the end of the year. Because some of the polling shows, if Jim Justice, for example, the sitting governor, runs against him, he could be in real trouble. Could Joe Manchin be looking for the exits? It's possible, which would change the game on the Senate side as well. Good times. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. Podcast is free every day. With us now is Katie Pavlich, editor at TownHall.com, my colleague there, and a Fox News contributor, my colleague here. Katie, always great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. Happy Monday. 
Happy Monday to you. I want to read to you from a New York Post piece written by Miranda Devine involving Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I saw House Republicans had put this out on social media as well. New emails uncovered by House Republicans probing the probing rather the COVID-19 pandemic revealed the deceptive nature of Dr. Anthony Fauci. This is the Post story. They show that he, Fauci, prompted or commissioned and had final approval on a scientific paper written specifically in February 2020 to disprove the theory that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. Eight weeks later, Fauci stood at a White House press conference alongside President Trump and cited that paper as evidence that the lab leak theory was implausible while pretending it had nothing to do with him and that he did not know the authors. And they quote him citing the study that he, I guess, had been somewhat heavily involved in and saying the paper will be available. I don't have the authors right now, but we'll make it available to you, not revealing the extent to which he was involved. The paper was titled The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2 and was sent to Fauci for editing in draft form and then again for final approval before it was published in Nature Medicine on February 17, 2020. It was written four days after Fauci and his NIH boss, Dr. Francis Collins, held a call with the four authors to discuss reports that COVID-19 may have leaked from the Wuhan lab. House Oversight Subcommittee published emails Sunday in which the paper's co-author, Dr. Christian Anderson, admits Fauci prompted him to write the paper with the goal of disproving the lab leak theory. So I'm sure, Katie, that Fauci will have some sort of slippery bureaucratic explanation for this. But it does at least look again weird and bad for him to have been, in my mind, strangely invested in knocking down the lab leak theory in the early days. And he was getting thanked for that by Peter Daszak, who was literally invested in that theory going away. And then behind the scenes was effectively commissioning a study that set out to disprove the lab leak theory and then was citing that study publicly as if he had nothing to do with it. I I just... I'm not an expert on the ethics of scientific journals and research, but this at least raises some questions about what Fauci was up to, what he was revealing, and sort of his role in some of this stuff. Well, the big question is is why he would be so desperate to quash the lab leak theory. And when you look at these emails uh, and emails that have been out uh, previously about his interactions on this topic, it's not that he – called for an investigation to look into it. There was an investigation and there was all the scientific evidence that proved it wasn't from the lab. I mean, he was told in emails from January of 2020, January 2020, that this looked abnormal, that it looked like it had been uh, engineered. And yet he, in these subsequent emails, was saying that we need to go after and essentially destroy the careers of any scientist who dared to question and bring this to the surface. And the question is why? Well, because Anthony Fauci did have an interest in not being held accountable for this pandemic, given that the NIH was giving grants to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they were conducting gain-of-function research, which I call Frankensteining of viruses research, making viruses more virulent to make it more deadly for humans. This type of research was actually banned by the Obama administration because it was so deadly, and yet the NIH was still funding it in places overseas. So his interest in this was not being complicit in creating a pandemic. And this is why you saw these very intense back and forth between Senator Rand Paul 
and Dr. Fauci repeatedly about NIH grant funding going to Wuhan and going to this type of um, a type of research. And if you'll remember, Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, who was one of the very few mainstream journalists who was willing to look into this and not just to take it as a Trump talking point, as we saw so much of, reminded everybody that scientists who wanted to get funding for their projects had to go through Anthony Fauci. So if you want to get funding for your project, you have to kiss the ring, you have to say what you're supposed to, and therefore... Um, it was very difficult for the scientific community even to get to the bottom of what actually happened for fear of retribution in their own fields. And that's exactly what we saw. Yeah, there was money involved here. I, I mentioned Peter Daszak and his organization. They were, you know, millions of dollars indebted to Fauci and that gravy train that was running through NIH. And obviously, if there was a, you know, world ruining pandemic that was escaping from one of these labs that could affect you know all of their research and their funding and all of that which is why there was that private email from Dasik to Fauci thanking Fauci profusely for knocking down the lab leak theory even though it was entirely plausible and viable from the beginning I've made the point many times I'll make it again if it were a naturally occurring virus the Chinese government would have every reason to provide every shred of evidence confirming that because then it wouldn't be their fault, right? It would be this unfortunate freak of nature that happened and they would want that evidence out there. And yet the evidence has never arrived because you might conclude it doesn't exist. And the Chinese government went out of their way to block any serious inquiry into this. Even the WHO investigation was 60 Minutes did a report about how they covered stuff up, destroyed evidence, wouldn't give unfettered access. It would make sense. It would follow that the CCP would do that sort of thing if they were embarrassed about what a true investigation might turn up. They had no reason to be embarrassed by something that had occurred naturally. They'd have a big reason to be embarrassed and humiliated and feel like they were geopolitically vulnerable if this had been engineered in one of their labs and accidentally had escaped and they were involved in this big cover-up. I mean, I don't think it's a huge leap to come to the conclusion, which is why a lot of people did, that the lab leak theory was at least very plausible, more so than ever, and yet Fauci is still kind of hedging and saying the jury's out and you never really know and we don't have a real answer. Part of the reason, Katie, we don't have a real answer is because the Chinese made sure we wouldn't get an answer. They destroyed the evidence. Well, and it didn't just stop with these internal email discussions inside of the NIH and the federal government. It went all the way to Facebook. And on March 15th, 2020, Mark Zuckerberg wrote a letter to Anthony Fauci saying, you know, thanks to your leadership, everything you're doing, if there's anything that I can do to get, quote, authoritative information out to the masses, let me know. Fauci follows up and says, yeah, I'd love to work with you. And then all of a sudden, while this information about the lab leak theory is coming to fruition through Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who had seen the intelligence, through Senator Tom Cotton, and to regular people, like you were just saying, who just know how the Chinese communist government operates and the cover-up they were engaged in. It was obvious this was not naturally occurring just by their behavior. Uh, Facebook then started taking down, in April 2020, any story that mentioned the lab leak theory. And then a year later, did an about-face and ran to Politico with story and said, yeah, you know, now that we're seeing more credible evidence that this maybe actually is from a lab, we're not going to censor this, this information anymore on Facebook. 
So it, it, it went out of the government bureaucracy into the general information space and was detrimental to the ability of getting to the bottom of it, figuring out what happened and preventing it from happening again, all the while Anthony Fauci continues to claim, well, we don't know, I have no interest in this, of course there was no gain-of-function funding, when all the evidence points to the contrary of that. Yeah, and he factually inaccurately was trying to blame Trump and the Trump administration for China's initial cover-up. The timeline made absolutely no sense, but that was one of the things that he said. He also said that this shouldn't be political, the investigation. Just leave it to the scientists, the Americans and the Chinese, as if Chinese scientists are not completely controlled by the authoritarian regime that controls everything in that country. I mean, it is at best naivete, at best, from Fauci, where it seemed like he was kind of effectively, whether he was doing it intentionally or not, running interference for the CCP in a number of ways. And then if you criticize the guy or ask tough questions, of course, the way that he framed it famously, arrogantly, was that these are attacks on science itself because Fauci considers himself the science. So if you question the great Fauci, uh, then you are questioning science. And, of course, that's very bad and very terrible. You mentioned Facebook and, and big tech. You mentioned the scientific community. A lot of people afraid to go up against Fauci for various reasons, including grants and that sort of thing. You also have a media component to this. I'm not sure if you saw this story, but here's FoxNews.com. Let me read to you from this. CNN has long referred to itself as the most trusted name in news and famously launched its Facts First campaign during the Trump era. But like many other outlets, that sentiment fell by the wayside when it came to the COVID lab leak theory. In recent days, the theory that COVID originated from a lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology has been embraced by the FBI. Also, a bombshell report indicating the U.S. Energy Department believes the virus likely started in a lab. A sentiment expressed by top Trump administration officials nearly from the outset. But in the early months, here's the key, in the early months of the pandemic, then CNN President Jeff Zucker would not allow his network to chase down the lab leak story because he believed it was, quote, a Trump talking point, according to a well-placed CNN insider. People are slowly waking up from the fog, this insider told Fox News Digital. It's kind of crazy that we didn't chase it harder. So at least according to this source inside CNN, and it would sort of align with a lot of the way CNN was approaching these issues, attacking not just Trump and Republicans and Tom Cotton and others, but also our colleague like Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who was talking about the lab leak theory. And Oliver Darcy hit a hit piece, wrote a hit piece on her saying that this was like a debunked thing. And they just asserted on air this didn't come from a lab. Apparently that was coming from on high CNN leadership because it seems like this was just all caught up in partisan tribalism. And if Trump said something or the bad people believe something, then CNN was just, at least allegedly in this case, not even allowing their journalists to look into it. Well, first of all, I just have to laugh at this idea that Oliver Darcy was writing hit pieces about actual Dr. Nicole Sapphire. I mean, looking back on the last three years and the the people who claimed that they had an authoritative voice over real, actual doctors, uh, including doctors who went to Harvard and Stanford, uh, the you know, Florida Surgeon Attorney General or Surgeon General, for example, 
just amazing how they were taken uh, at face value as the experts uh, while they attacked the real experts who simply were asking for inquiries into some of the information they were seeing. But as a news network, CNN maybe would think about looking at the way that China was treating the reporters in country, kicking out the Wall Street Journal, kicking out Reuters, uh, because they didn't want anybody looking into the lab leak theory and saying, wow, as a news network, it's very odd that they're not allowing reporters in to do their own independent assessment of, of what happened. Um, and I think this is why you're seeing CNN in the pathetic place that it is, uh, because they decided to just go against everything that the Trump administration did rather than following some of the facts and reporting the news. Um, it's really kind of pathetic the way that they've gone down in flames. Speaking of CNN, I had to chuckle at this headline. I saw it over the weekend. This is a CNN.com story. Pete Buttigieg starts to rethink how he does his job in wake of Ohio train disaster. And just the framing of that, Buttigieg starts to rethink how he does his job. Um, I guess I'm glad he's coming around to the rethink. Seems like a rethink is probably needed. But it almost makes the framing of this almost makes it seem like Buttigieg is just kind of a, a victim of events around him. And he just has to reconceptualize his approach. I don't think you need any sort of extra incredible insight to say, oh, here's a big disaster in my portfolio as a cabinet secretary. I shouldn't wait a week and a half to say something about it. And I shouldn't wait three weeks to get basically shamed and bullied into showing up and wearing a hard hat and goggles for one day and all of a sudden pretend that I care about this. I mean, you shouldn't have to start a rethink over stuff like that my question is why what did he think this job was going to be right in the first I mean, place clearly clearly he thought it was just going to be being a figurehead going to fancy dc parties taking lots of personal time when there were media media interviews like a placeholder to run for president again. yeah right media interviews documentaries about his life you know time to fly to do interviews for documentaries while he was on his personal time. He didn't really think there was actual work to do when it came to real transportation and train derailings. I mean, if he really were up for the job, he would have entered the office understanding this is an issue and that he needed to improve it and how to deal with it. And yet he's stepping back and thinking, oh, well, I guess I have to actually show up and and do some work here. Um, I mean, it just is a joke. It's like, what did he think he was going to have to do when he was appointed to this position? Nothing? Not deal with trains, planes, and automobiles? I mean, come on. It's a pretty crucial well, part of the way the country well, he's having He's having a rethink, Katie. So just give the man a break. It's only oh, been two well, years. I'm sure it'll be great oh. after that. Maybe you should think about resigning and moving on. Katie Pavlich, my colleague at townhall.com here at Fox News as well. Katie, always enjoy it. Let's talk again soon. Great to talk to you. Have a good one. Guy Benson Show after this very short break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. So this is an interesting maneuver. We just mentioned on Friday that Joe Biden, like, pulled the rug out from under congressional Democrats, especially House Democrats, on the D.C. crime bill. 
where the D.C. City Council decided in their infinite wisdom to reduce criminal penalties for a bunch of violent crimes and gun crimes and carjacking and the like. As those crimes have spiked in the district. So Republicans have already passed it out of the House, a resolution to override what the D.C. Council has done. And then Biden, I guess, was looking at the political dynamics. He's like, "Uh oh, actually, I will sign a bill to override the D.C. Council on this one. But I'm still in favor of home rule and statehood, which is, I think, totally contradictory. And they just saw the writing on the wall. They saw Senate Democrats who wanted to vote for this thing for their own political reasons. After House Democrats, 173 of them had all voted the other direction, assuming that was the Democratic position. Right? They were just voluntarily saluting what they guessed would be the White House position. They were wrong. So that was a big dust up over the last couple of days in Democratic politics. Well, now the D.C. City Council is scrambling, trying to figure out what's going to happen, because imagine being one of these left wing council members where your own party is about to undo a law that you've imposed in D.C. It's the opposite of home rule, where the Republicans have led this fight and they're about to win this fight. And your own party's president has felt cornered and is going to, like, side with the Republicans. What do you do? So what the D.C. Council chairman is saying is that he's just withdrawing the law. So they shouldn't have the vote anymore. Oh, no, the the law is withdrawn. So never mind. Never mind with the voting. Now, Republicans are saying that's not a thing. It's already passed. They overrode the mayor's veto. It is law. And the vote in Congress must happen. And this is just a maneuver on something that's made up to try to save face and avoid a painful vote. The vote has to happen anyway. Get everyone on the record. D.C. Council did it to themselves, and 173 House Democrats have a lot to answer for. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour is here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free when the show is over. No charge on demand 24-7. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert. The Dow closing up 40 points today ending at 33,431. Joining me now, U.S. Senator Deb Fischer, Republican of Nebraska. She serves on the Armed Services, Appropriations, Commerce, Agriculture, and Rules Committees, so she's very busy. First time on the program, so welcome, Senator. Great to have you. It's good to be here, Guy. Thanks for the invite. You bet. I want to talk about your recent trip to the southern border what you saw down there, who you went with, and what some of your takeaways are. I'd imagine you sometimes get asked about this back home by constituents. What did you glean from that trip that might be new, at least to your eyes? Well, first, let me give you some of the top line numbers that I think really show how bad the problem is. For the total encounters this fiscal year, it's already shot up to 770,000. And just in one month, in December, it was over 251,000. You know, hearing 
hearing the numbers, I didn't think was enough. I think it's important that people get down to the border and see what's going on. Uh, sure, we can talk about numbers, but when you're down there and you're talking to the border agents, uh, you see the the wall that's been built. You see the illegal migrants uh, in their uh, holding areas, processing centers. Uh, it really brings home what a crisis this is. So, by how- the way, just to jump in, Senator, I just want to underscore something. When you went down there, you saw migrants because I recall when President Biden went down there to check the box. He didn't see a single migrant. Right. Right. And I and that's that's unbelievable. I mean, it's really unbelievable. It's frustrating uh, that to say you're at the border and not and not go to uh, the border itself. We got there. It was close to midnight. Um, the Border Patrol took us out. We made stops at about three places along the wall at two of those places. They had uh, some migrants who uh, they were just beginning to process, who they had picked up. Uh, We had a chance to ask them a couple questions where they were from, um, mostly from Colombia, the the people that we saw. A lot of single uh, men. We did see a couple uh, families. We saw a six-month-old baby. Um, And for the president and the vice president, our borders are, not to see that in person, uh, it's really inexcusable. Uh, because well, you, you have to almost go out of your way, right? Like I was down there at the border on a reporting trip and did this show from the border last year. You were just there. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say if you have interest in seeing what's happening down there, you almost have to go out of your way to not see migrants. But that's exactly what the president was presented. Correct. Um, You know, we had uh, some great uh, briefings with the Border Patrol, with Customs and Border Protection, uh, with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, It was it was very informative. But what really uh, brought it home after you after you had all these briefings, you hear all the numbers was going to the border wall was getting on a boat and and going up and down uh, the Rio Grande River. Uh, we were even on horseback to go through the brush on our side of the river to be able to see um, through this thick brush how when the migrants uh, cross the river, get out of the river, uh, the paths that they go on. We went to a stash house uh, right after it had been raided where migrants go to these homes. And this was in a... This was in a nice suburban uh, area to see this stash house uh, where um, a weapon was found. Uh, They had picked up a smuggler and just one um, illegal migrant at that place. But, um, you know, it until you see it, um, I just I just don't think you can um, have that understanding. And as a president, you really can't speak with any authority until you are able to look these border agents in the eye and listen to what they need. Senator, were there any Democratic colleagues with you on this trip? Uh, Not on this trip. Uh, Senator Cornyn, in I think the one he did just before this one, it was a bipartisan group uh, that he was with there. But there were uh, six of us. I think they try to keep it to a manageable number. And uh, we were all Republicans on this trip. I asked because you probably saw this recently. 
some of your colleagues on the House side held a field hearing in Tucson, Arizona on these issues, and the Democrats on the committee just boycotted it. They didn't show up at all. And it just, you know, not to make it overly partisan, but it really feels like you've got the Republicans focused on the issue, uh, on substance. You could say it's for politics, too, but the results are what they are. The crisis is what it is. And for the Democrats to occasionally put out you know, press releases of concern, but to seemingly refuse to, you know, actually engage with the crisis itself and look at it with eyes open, I, I think it's an indictment of the fact that they aren't serious about this and really would wish people would stop talking about it. Um, that's that's probably a fair assessment, Guy. You know, the president and uh, most of my colleagues, they don't even acknowledge that there's a crisis. And I would say it's a humanitarian crisis when you think of what these people are going through to be smuggled into this country and then how they're continuing continuing to be uh, used and abused as the coyotes transfer them in this country uh, whether it's almost as indentured workers or in human trafficking uh, with sex trade. Uh, yeah. We know about the fentanyl coming across the border. But I would bring up to you the, the thing I am most worried about is our national security. I'm on the Armed Services uh, Committee. I, I know the threats that this country faces. And when you have uh, migrants from over 150, 170 countries coming in across our southern border, um, that is dangerous. That is definitely a threat to this nation's security. Uh, you can get a tactical nuclear weapon in a backpack. We need to know who's coming in this country and what they're bringing. Senator, I just do want to point out there's a story in the news today. Four American citizens who had traveled to Mexico so on the Mexican side of the border, uh, they're missing. Uh, it appears that they were kidnapped. This kidnapping was caught on camera. Uh, some of the reports that we're seeing now is that this could have been a mistaken identity situation where this was not an intentional kidnapping of American citizens. I know the FBI is on it, uh, obviously concerning for their, self, uh, their safety, rather. Seems like the cartels may have scooped him up not knowing who they were. The Mexican government doesn't have control over a lot of Mexican territory. The cartels do. So I hope those Americans get back safely. Just another scary component to this overall problem. Very quickly before I let you go, we have less than a minute, Senator. Your former colleague in the Senate from your state is now the president of the University of Florida. Ben Sass is down there. You've got a new colleague, Senator Ricketts, who is governor. How's that transition going for the Nebraska delegation? Well, I think really smoothly, you know, Senator Sass, he advanced conservative values when he was here in the Senate. Uh, Pete Ricketts uh, was governor of the state of Nebraska for eight years. He's doing uh, a good job already here in the Senate. He is uh, working hard, getting himself familiar, not just with his committee assignments, but but also just the procedures we have. And you're, of course, right there to help because now you are the senior senator from Nebraska, Deb Fisher, her first time here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, we so appreciate your time. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Great. Thanks, Guy. Taking a break, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show next. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. 
One thing that can be fascinating to watch in politics are political realignments. That can sometimes happen slowly over time and sometimes can develop in a flash. There's a story in the New York Times by David Leonhardt. Headline, Asian Americans Shifting Right. The New Politics of Class in America. This was published today. Here's the lead, an anecdote from New York City. The Chinatown area of Sunset Park, Brooklyn, was long a Democratic stronghold. The party's candidates would often receive more than 70% of the vote there. Last year, however, the neighborhood underwent a political transformation. Lee Zeldin, the Republican nominee for governor, managed to win Sunset Park's Chinatown, receiving more votes than Governor Kathy Hochul. This map by my colleague shows the change, and it's a map of the neighborhood. 2018, a lot of blue. 2022, mostly red. This is Chinatown in Brooklyn. The shift, he writes, David Leonhardt, The Times, is part of a national story. In the last two elections, 2020 and 2022, Asian Americans have moved toward the right, according to election results and exit polls. Democrats still won Asian voters by a wide margin in last year's midterms, but by less than in the recent past. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, the Republican incumbent, beat Beto O'Rourke among Asian voters, 52 percent to 46 percent. And Texas House Republicans also did well, according to polling by the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. In statewide races in Florida and Georgia, the Republican candidates received at least one-third of the vote, substantially more than in previous elections. The Times has recently published a series of maps and charts focusing on New York City neighborhoods where most eligible voters are of Asian descent, including Sunset Park and also Flushing, Manhattan's Chinatown. As one community activist who was raised in South Richmond Hill, home to a large Indian-American population, told us, I've never seen so many signs for a Republican governor in the areas I grew up in. She was one of the local leaders, academic researchers, and political officials who were interviewed for this piece. And some of the points, they say, in the Times came up repeatedly. First of all, Republican campaigns have recently increased their outreach to Asian voters, while Democratic candidates have grown complacent. That sounds familiar, not just involving Asian-American voters, but other groups as well. The Democrats and their coalition on the left, they really believe like they own a lot of voters. Unless basically you're a white, cisgendered, straight man, they feel like they should own you. They get very angry with you if you don't go along with that program. But a lot of the time they don't bother to actually make the argument to you anymore. They just feel like it's their birthright. The Democratic Party owns you and your vote. And that hasn't been working out for them necessarily all over the place. And some of that has to do, as we just heard there, with the GOP actually rolling up its collective sleeves and reaching out to some of these folks. Right, so Democrats took places for granted. So did Republicans saying, oh, it's a waste of our time and resources. And I think what we've seen is that's not true. You show up, you present your argument, you reach out. And you try to persuade people and win their votes and ask for that support. And it's paying dividends among Asian-American communities. Another bullet point that comes up over and over again on this phenomenon, education issues hurt Democrats. Asian voters have been unhappy with proposals to change the rules for magnet high schools like Stuyvesant High School, 
that admit children based on test scores. Many students at those schools come from lower-income Asian families. Yeah, they see the government, led by woke people, discriminating against Asians explicitly. For lack of a better term, the wokeness is, and the equity push, is actively hurting Asians. Hard-working, blue-collar Asian families. And these families who value education and upward mobility and the American dream very highly, they look around and they're noticing. And they see who is launching the attack on education, who is undermining the value of education and what true education actually means in favor of some sort of giant ideological project, and who's trying to hold the line and stop this insanity from getting implemented. And Republicans, unsurprisingly, are benefiting because these parents aren't on board for this kind of stuff. I think you could add Virginia to the list. Glenn Youngkin worked hard to win Asian votes. Some you know, like Far East Asian communities, subcontinent Indian communities and, and Asian communities. He did quite well compared to previous Republicans. And then another bullet point, perhaps most important, the Republicans' anti-crime message resonated following increases in both citywide crime and anti-Asian violence. Yeah, and a lot of the anti-Asian violence was committed not by white supremacists, we'll put it that way, and so Democrats just didn't want to talk about it. They would chant slogans and hold signs about Asian hate, but wouldn't actually deal with the problem, wouldn't get tough on crime, wouldn't be honest about who was committing the crimes, because it didn't really fit with the narrative of intersectionality. And... I know it seems weird, but guess what? Asian Americans, like everyone else, they want to be safe in their homes and their neighborhoods. And the Democrats have not been delivering. The Republicans are talking about those issues, including crime. And it made a huge difference in places like New York. Asian Americans are politically diverse. The most heavily Democratic groups are Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshi, and Arabs. The least Democratic group is Vietnamese Americans, followed by Korean, Cambodian, and Filipinos. And you're just seeing a bit of a shift across the board rightward. And it's not some sort of manipulation. It's not Republicans coming in and lying to people and scaring them. It's Democrats who don't care to tell the truth about the actual issues facing voters and who believe that they are just entitled to these people's votes. And then other people looking around, seeing what is happening in their lived experience, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their communities, and saying, well, actually, one of these parties is resonating right now. The other party is often some sort of fantasy land. And thus, another group of people of color, although sometimes Asians aren't considered people of color for political reasons by these exact same activists, which probably annoys them on top of everything else, they are saying, actually, we are not ball and chain connected to the Democratic Party or their coalition. So, I mean, Republicans continue to lean in on education and on crime, on basic sanity, and show up. The Democrats aren't going to take everyone for granted much longer. They're going to, out of political expediency and survival, they're going to step their game up. Republicans have to commit to this. Because like Hispanics, this is another group that's up for grabs and could be reshaping the political map for cycles and years, if not decades, to come. 
Very interesting piece in the Times today. Now, since we're talking about woke excess and some of the totally banana stuff that the activist ruling class on the left has thrust on our society recently, let's talk again about COVID. A little vignette, a story from 2021 that's just finally being fully told at one of the most elite schools in the country. It just blew my mind that this happened. We will read you those details as soon as we come back. You want to hear this on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Midway through today's Monday edition of The Guy Benson Show here in D.C. in the Tony Snow Studios. Fox DC Bureau. Glad you're here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free every day. So I saw this piece written recently and published by a group called the Brownstone Institute. It's written by someone named William Spruance, who was, during COVID, a law student at Georgetown University. And his piece is entitled, What Happened at Georgetown Law with COVID? And this caught my attention for a couple of reasons. Number one, I have some connection to Georgetown. I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics for undergrads. That was also during the pandemic in 2021. It was all virtual. We eventually hosted for our students a little party at our house, but that was kind of unsanctioned, unofficial. Everything related to the school was all virtual at the time. I had a great time. It's a great program. Mo Alethe has been on this program a number of times. He runs it. So no quarrel with them. But we have on this show, nonetheless, been quite critical of Georgetown as being one of the craziest campuses when it came to COVID mandates and requirements. I mean, you took some of the wild excesses of other campuses, other institutions, you roll them up into one place, and that's basically what you got at Georgetown. So... While they were happening in real time, we were critical of them here. We've also been focused on and off on Georgetown Law School itself, which has been an epicenter of woke insanity in recent years. The whole episode with Ilya Shapiro, a conservative libertarian scholar who had been hired into a significant position at the law school, who had some tweets that people found objectionable about Katanji Brown-Jackson, her nomination to the Supreme Court, they lost their minds over there. And eventually, Ilya was put into this purgatory where he had to wait in this holding pattern forever and was prostrating himself before Georgetown and apologizing, and none of that was good enough. And eventually, they effectively hounded him out of Georgetown. Someone of Ilya Shapiro's caliber apparently was unwelcome at Georgetown Law because he's center-right. And that conniption fit, that hysterical tantrum, was successful. I mean, it was like cancel culture 101. They had fired an instructor, a faculty member at Georgetown Law, for commenting on differences in achievement levels among racial groups at the school, These faculty members didn't realize they were on a hot mic. One of them was making this point. People went nuts, said they were horribly harmed, and that person was gone. 
Faculty members were attacked for deviating from the group thing, left-wing group thing. Of course, if you were someone at Georgetown Law who is an unhinged leftist saying horrible things, they stood behind you because of academic freedom, like the professor who talked about Republican senators deserving death, like a miserable, painful death because of their roles in the Kavanaugh hearings. That woman was just fine at Georgetown. And I'm not saying that she should have been fired, just the standards are so different. Glaringly so. Dissidents, intellectual, ideological dissidents, shunned, punished there. Students demanding censorship of views and speakers that they don't like. I mean, it's the whole gamut of woke culture at one of these elite institutions, D.C.-based Georgetown Law. Which brings me, that's the backdrop to this William Spruance piece, what happened at Georgetown Law with COVID, and it just blows my mind. He writes, based on the policies and the return to campus, quote, I thought it was proper to ask questions about Georgetown's COVID policies. In August 2021, Georgetown Law returned to in-person learning after 17 months of virtual learning, so basically a year and a half. The school announced a series of new policies for the school year. There was a vaccine requirement later to be supplemented with booster mandates. These are for overwhelmingly young people, by the way. All the vaccine mandates, of course. Students were required to wear masks on campus and drinking water was banned in the classroom. They even made clear, because I remember talking about this at the time, pulling your mask down to take a sip of water was unacceptable and against the rules, which is absolute insanity. They were wrong on the vaccines and the efficacy of the vaccines in terms of preventing infection and transmission. The vaccines were very effective at keeping people out of the hospital and from dying, especially among vulnerable populations. But the way the vaccines were sold in terms of efficacy wasn't true, even when that was blindingly obvious. They didn't change their tune on that at all at Georgetown. There have been all sorts of scientific questions about the efficacy of mask mandates. They didn't care about that. They had all their special rules based on really just tribal superstition. And Georgetown was going to enforce them rigorously. In fact, as this Georgetown law student writes, the dean, Bill Trainer, announced a new anonymous hotline called Law Compliance for community members to report dissidents who dared to quench their thirst or free their vaccinated nostrils. So if you were a law student or someone connected to Georgetown Law and you saw someone pull their mask down for a little bit in an unsanctioned way, for example, to hydrate, you could call the anonymous hotline and rat them out. Healthy, healthy stuff. Meanwhile, the story explains, faculty members were exempt from the requirement. Though the school never explained what factors caused their heightened powers of immunity. Again, this was not about science at all. It hadn't been about science for quite some time. Shortly thereafter, this young man writes, I received a notification from law compliance that I had been identified as non-compliant for letting a mask fall beneath my nose. I had a meeting with the dean of students Mitch Balin, to discuss my insubordination. I tried to voice my concerns about the irrationality of the school's policies. 
He had no answers to my simple questions, but assured me that he understood my frustration. Then he encouraged me to get involved in the conversation, telling me that there was a student bar association meeting set to take place the following week. I arrived at the meeting with curiosity. I had no interest in banging my fist and causing a commotion. I just wanted to know the reasoning, the rational basis that law schools so often discuss behind our school's policies. There were four simple questions. So he gets up at this meeting to ask these questions. After a year and a half of virtual learning, he was curious. Number one, what was the goal of the school's COVID policy? Zero COVID, flattening the curve, what's the goal? Number two, what was the limiting principle to that goal? For example, are there trade-offs? Number three, what metrics would the community need to reach for the school to remove its mask mandate? And number four, how can you explain the contradictions in your policies? For instance, how could the virus be so dangerous that we could not take a sip of water, but safe enough that we are required to be present on campus? And why are faculty exempt from masking requirements? He writes, I feared there were simple answers to my questions that I had overlooked. These administrators made hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. Surely they must have had something behind their draconian measures, right? The contradictions appeared obvious to me. The data seemed clear, but maybe there was an explanation. I delivered a brief speech without a mask, standing 15 feet away from the nearest person. I awaited a response to my questions. Then I realized this wasn't about facts or data, premises or conclusions. This was about power and image. Arbitrary, irrational, capricious. So he goes through and talks about the testing regime. They had constant testing at Georgetown Law, conducting more than a thousand tests in just a week. And the positive rate was minuscule, less than 0.2 percent. And yet all of this stuff was required of the students over and over again, including the banning of water. He writes his speech, these questions, ended in an anticlimactic silence. I asked the crowd what I'd been missing. There was no response. There were no answers to my questions, no acknowledgments of the policies that were absurd or the contradictions. I thanked them for their time, walked out of the auditorium. I figured I might get a follow-up email about the speech, perhaps something from the administration, but it all seemed settled. It appeared to be quintessential D.C., a speech with zero effect. But that ended two days later when Dean of Students Mitch Balin informed me that I was, listen to this, indefinitely suspended from campus. Balin told me that I had to submit to a psychiatric evaluation that I had to voluntarily waive my right to medical confidentiality, that the school could discuss the incidents with the state bar associations if I ever hoped to practice law. So this guy gets ratted out on the, like, you know, report line, the hotline, Stasi style. He gets dragged into the dean of students' office. He tries to reason with the dean who encourages him to show up for a meeting and get involved. He shows up at the meeting asks completely rational and reasonable questions. And just a few days later, he gets suspended from campus, told that he has to undergo a psych eval, like he's a dangerous psychotic. That's the implication there. That he has to waive his right, which is so creepy, to medical confidentiality. Just talk about the totalitarianism here. And then this obvious threat to future employment. Like, oh, we're going to discuss this with state bar associations, which lean very, very left, by the way. Like, good luck being able to practice law if we get involved this way. Dean Balin, 
going back to the story, told me I would have to attend hearings and provide written statements on why I had asked my questions in order to, quote, secure permission to return to campus. So he had to basically explain himself. Why would you ask these things? It should be obvious why he was asking the questions. To even have a chance to get back on campus, he had to go through all this rigmarole. Additionally, I had to provide, quote, a statement explaining why you no longer pose a risk to the community of defying that policy or otherwise creating risks of disruption and risks to public health. I mean, this is just demented. The disruption, by the way, he says, was asking questions, which happens to be the basis of law school. He writes, there was no challenging the blatant irrationality underpinning Balin's institutional discipline, submission triumphed over logic, hierarchy over rationality, institutional power over individual inquiry. So then what happened? What happened next? The conclusion with some blood-boiling twists and turns right after this, don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, I'm recounting this story written by William Spruance, the Georgetown Law student, who dared to question the school about their totally insane COVID policies, and he got into huge trouble. So he shows up for this Zoom meeting that he's required to conduct the following week for a series of mandatory administrative hearings, shrink sessions, and meetings with this dean of students, this guy Balin. Sounds like a real treat. Balin enjoyed a general theme of institutional domination and submission. Quote, I will tell you when you go in. I'll let you know who we're meeting with, he said. I want to be really, really clear. This isn't a negotiation at this point. I'm instructing you the minimum steps you can take if you wish to return to campus. When I asked for answers to my simple questions, he snapped back, our job is not to convince you of the rightness or the sensibility of the policy. He then told me to try to, quote, escape my echo chamber. I I just have to say, even though this was back in 2021, we're just still learning about what was done during COVID by these busybody, power-hungry bureaucrats all over the place. And I'm not going to just let it go anytime soon. I'm not just going to get over it anytime soon. Nothing like this ever happened to me, but it's outrageous. And it seems like the more elite you get in terms of these institutions, the worse it was. The more pro-science they pretended to be, the less pro-data and evidence they actually were. This was an opportunity to exercise their power and to exert their control and to flex their muscles in a way that little petty tyrants enjoy. A dean of students would not talk to left-wing activists like this. The left-wing activist students at Georgetown Law get their way basically every time with the administrators sniveling and cowering and saying, oh, yes, you're so right. We're so sorry. You're right. They cater to those people. But you've got one guy asking totally sensible questions about nutty COVID policies. And they're like, you are instructed to go under psych evaluation. And we're not here to convince you this is the bare minimum you must do if you want a prayer of coming back in this place and getting a job. And then it's just like an extra piece de resistance for this guy to tell the student to try to escape his echo chamber. (laughs) There was someone in an echo chamber here. It wasn't the student, William Spruance. It was the dean of students, this guy, Balin. 
So the conclusion was he started to call around to his professors and telling them that he couldn't attend class because the school had banned him from campus. And he started getting calls from civil rights attorneys, people wanting to take on the case, because across the spectrum, a lot of people were horrified by this. Like this was way unacceptable overreach on Georgetown Law's part. So after consulting with people outside my echo chamber, this guy writes, the script didn't portray him, Balin, as the hero. There had been a plot twist. I could tell my story with complete confidence. I questioned the irrational, and Georgetown suspended me and sent me to a shrink. This wasn't about me. I was a nobody. But Georgetown had a brand that the producers had to maintain, meaning the producers of the show, basically. I informed Mitch Balin that journalists, lawyers, and television programs were interested in speaking with me. Later that evening, Fox News covered the story without using my name. Fourteen hours later, Dean Malin notified me that my suspension had been lifted. So not until this guy basically started to lawyer up and Fox News started paying attention, and this was going to start to reflect very badly on Georgetown, not until that moment did a single thing change. The iron fist of Georgetown law was ready to crush this kid into submission. But then a little bit of sunlight came in, and they started getting worried, and then abruptly out of nowhere, oh, never mind. So that's like a little modicum of justice, it would seem. I'm sure this was very instructive for Mr. Spruance. I wonder if there was any accountability for Dean Balin, the way that he behaved, based on the way Georgetown Law has conducted its business now for the last several years, even subsequent to this. It seems like all the bad incentives are still in place. William Spruance concludes his piece. The masks, the people, the script, it was all a production. Mitch Balin wasn't an educator. He was a low-level set manager concerned with power, not inquiry. Georgetown Law continues as an incubator for an unimpressive ruling class, teaching its pupils to nod along to the script. As they say, the show must go on. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of how America's ruling classes are being brought up these days which is why we cover these stories, whether it's on COVID or something else. Excessive wokeness is absolutely destructive. And kudos to this guy for standing up to it and notching just a little tiny win against the Leviathan of Georgetown law. Final hour of the Guy Benson show coming up next. Back to electoral politics. Josh Krasauer on some long-distance feuding and positioning between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. That happened over the weekend. We'll get his reaction, his analysis straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Monday from Washington, D.C., It's the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me personally at Guy P. Benson. Our website here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. It's on demand, no charge. 
GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Absolutely delicious. If you haven't tried it yet and you're an adult, 21 plus, you should check it out. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you as they expand. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios. And in addition to his duties at Axios, starting at the end of this month, Josh is also going to become the new editor-in-chief at Jewish Insider. So, Josh, congrats on the additional extra gig, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. It's it's pretty exciting uh, both to uh, be leading the great team uh, at Jewish Insider in the, at the end of the month and, and continuing to put out the Sunday Sneak newsletter uh, at Axios, and I'll, I'll be launching a column, too, at Jewish Insider, uh, kind of along the lines of my old Against the Grain column uh, back in, that, in, in, in the old days. So, um, yeah, I have my, my hands in a lot of, lot, a lot of uh, spaces, but uh, always talking politics, always writing about politics is always going to be there for me. Perfect, and we love having you here. I want to start with CPAC. I was traveling this weekend. I was actually at an event with the Club for Growth and was doing some panels and that sort of stuff for them. And they had a lot of the would-be presidential contenders come through, announced and unannounced. All right, so Nikki Haley was there. Ron DeSantis was there, a number of others. Donald Trump was not there. He was not invited. They've been sparring the club and former President Trump. Trump, though, was at CPAC, which really seemed to be more than ever a Trump-focused event. I mean, CPAC is not really the same as what it used to be back before Trump was on the scene and even back during his presidency. It just feels like CPAC has sort of changed into something a little bit different. It's morphed into something quite different than what it was not that long ago. I saw a lot of the clips online where it seemed like there were very few people in the audience for a lot of the big speeches, not for Trump. It was packed out for Trump. Uh, He won the straw poll there running away, uh, which makes sense. It's sort of like a Trump fan club, basically, at CPAC these days. But other people showed up as well. As you were keeping tabs on CPAC, Josh, were there any big takeaways that strike you as significant? Because, you know, if this were the same time of year at this point in the cycle, in previous presidential cycles, I mean, CPAC was a very significant proving ground for candidates and the ballrooms would be packed and supporters would show up for someone they'd campaigns made sure that people were there to cheer on their person and it just maybe i'm misreading it because again i was down in florida from a distance but it just felt like the vibe was was definitely not quite that this time around yeah the the crowds were notably smaller than in every cpac i've attended and reported on in washington dc or outside the nation's capital but they were also more pro-Trump and, and much more MAGA uh, in the orientation. So that is sort of the story, Guy, of the, where the Republican Party may be headed, where you know you have Trump trying to make the Republican Party into a much more populist vehicle, one that is you know one that is MAGA-oriented. Uh, but it's a smaller, you know, making it a smaller faction of, of both the electorate and the Republican Party. And when you heard Guy, uh, he was talking about. The Bush era Republicans at CPAC. He was going by name after Paul Ryan, and Jeb Bush, and Karl Rove, I believe. Uh, it was it was a very, um, you know, very, even by Trump standards, it was a speech that was trying to draw lines between the MAGA wing of the party and the more traditional conservative wing of the party. And look, that's going to be the battle in this 2024 primary. And Trump certainly has found 
what he's running his message he's running on, and he, he debuted it at CPAC. The question is, can the rest of the Republican field get on their feet, draw those same contrasts, and go after uh, Trump like you would normally see in a in a typical presidential primary? What what makes this race and, and what made you know the first if we consider this as sort of the opening week of, of the campaign where DeSantis is at the Reagan Library, he was at the Club for Growth Summit over the weekend, Trump at CPAC. What made it so distinctive is Trump punches at his rivals as he always does. Yet everyone else in the field or who could be in the field has shied away from directly going after Trump, and that's not the way to win an election. If you're not willing to throw the contrast like Trump did over the weekend, it's going to be tough to get support or to grow support as this campaign is underway. Speaking of the rest of the field, I was mentioning some of this earlier. I wrote about it at townhall.com this morning. Over the weekend, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, former governor, a Republican, a moderate, he announced that he was not going to run for president. And that's not exactly earth-shattering news necessarily. He had, in my view, absolutely no path to the nomination. But he was widely considered to be someone who was going to run and represent sort of a different wing of the party. And what struck me, Josh, was it's not just Larry Hogan who decided to take a pass. There's a bunch of others. I mean, there's a chance that zero senators might run for president, which is extraordinary because I could have listed even a few months ago off the top of my head at least half a dozen Senate Republicans who would be very eager or inclined to potentially run. And they're all bowing out from Ted Cruz to Rick Scott to Josh Hawley to Tom Cotton to Rand Paul. There was, you know, some questions about, you know, Rubio or someone like Joni Ernst. Apparently that's not going to happen. Tim Scott is still testing the waters actively. He might end up being the only U.S. senator to jump into the Republican primary. And you're just, I guess, seeing a lot of the names or at least a good number of the names that were on the laundry list of 20 plus people who were considered potential candidates going the direction of not throwing their hats into the ring. I know you and I talked about it weeks ago on this show where I put the over under at 12 in terms of people who would ultimately get in. And you took the under. I was a little bit surprised, but that's looking pretty smart these days because some of those names that would have easily gotten you over 12 are saying, no, thanks, not this time. That is at least one big difference between this point in this cycle, 2023, and what we were seeing with the cattle call that was really developing in 2015. I'm not saying that it's determinative or, you know, this is any huge significance, but the narrower the field at the onset, the more different it will be from 2015 if you're looking to make some of those parallels. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, this is going to be a smaller field. It's going to be a different type of campaign than in 2016. It's a unique campaign where you have well, – how often do you have a former president running uh, in a primary that, that is still going to be contested? Um, not very often. Uh, look, I think what's keeping a lot of potential candidates on the sidelines is, number one, Ron DeSantis is kind of this elephant in the room. He's, he's the workshop test for there, – there are a lot of MAGA folks or people who are kind of closer to the, to the Trump camp that like what they see out of Florida. But there's also a lot of donors and establishment figures, even Jeb Bush, who, who think Ron DeSantis is great. And, and you kind of pick and choose what you like in Ron DeSantis as he's had a lot of success governing in Florida. But he's not in the race yet. He hasn't actually been a candidate, and there's a lot of concern, frankly, that he is – you know, so as, as a newcomer to national politics, may, may not have – you know, maybe tested in a way that he's never been tested in his political career before. And uh, so you have this decision-making process by a lot of Republicans. You know, they see Trump has got his base. He's got that 30 percent lockdown. 
DeSantis is a formidable competitor, uh, and they don't want to split the anti-Trump vote up. But at the same time, if DeSantis falters, if he doesn't live up to expectations, I think there's, there's a desire to have, have someone else uh, kind of try to fill that role. Uh, and, and it's just a very – that's why this field is so undeveloped. It's why it's very volatile, this campaign, and why there, there is so much at stake, really. I mean, I think one thing we learned this week is that this isn't just a, a bigger classic you know, battle between who's going to represent the party in the next election. It really is a battle for the soul of the Republican Party. And if you listen to Donald Trump's rhetoric, there's a lot more policy, a lot more substance in that CPAC speech than I, you know, I'm used to hearing from, from the former president. But it would take the Republican Party in a dramatically different direction than what we saw even in his own presidency where he you know, governed in a, in a much more pragmatic way than what he articulated on the campaign stump this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. Uh, I've seen some people in Trump world actually using Ronald Reagan as almost an epithet, saying, oh, well, DeSantis is more of a Reagan conservative. And I just I'm sure DeSantis would say, yes, thank you. You know, put that on a giant billboard. I I embrace that fully. But it seems like maybe times are changing. And maybe one of the ways that Trump is going to go after DeSantis is to say, no, he's from this old school Reagan conservative uh, sort of mold. And whether that actually translates into being effective among a Republican electorate saying, oh, yeah, let's reject that that awful Reagan. I, I don't know. Reagan still has an enormous amount of goodwill, even among young people like me who I was alive during part of his presidency. I don't remember it at all. But, you know, you can go back and watch. The YouTube videos of his speeches and just what he accomplished as president. I'm just I don't know. Running against Reagan seems like a risky proposition. But to some extent, it feels like that's what they're test driving a little bit. Yeah. When you look at the polls, Guy, and there's a consistent pattern showing up, the people who are in the Republican Party that say they're the most conservative are the most loyal to Trump. And the people who are the most, you know, somewhat conservatives or, or more moderate actually like DeSantis a lot. Even though Ron DeSantis has been a deeply conservative governor of Florida, and even though Trump has taken positions on stuff like entitlement reform, on foreign policy, uh, on a whole host of issues, frankly, that are not part of that traditional conservative uh, mantra. So when I talked to some Trump advisors over the last week, they, they, they think this campaign is really a battle for the soul of the party, that they, they, they believe that Trump's uh, views are, are actually true conservatism. And, 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 you know, maybe they won't always mention Reagan's name, but they certainly want to draw contrasts with Bush and, uh, and, and, and a past generation of conservatives who believe dramatically different things about uh, foreign policy and America's role in the world, dramatically different things about, you know, making sure spending is, I mean, spending is, is, is held within restraint and that there's balanced budgets and, and you actually have free market principles that govern uh, the commander in chief's views, you know, like that, that, that is Reaganism. And, and it, it, there was a, if you listen to that Trump speech, uh, even as they may try to bring Reagan up at CPAC, that is a rejection of a lot of Reagan's core, core views. And that is the test in this election. Uh, I think you're going to see someone like a DeSantis have to decide, does he draw that contrast sharply between what Trump's advocating and a, and a more traditional conservatism? Or does he try, try to find some third way or try to triangulate between the two and, and hope to win over some you know, Trump fans as well as some of the more traditional Republicans? Well, meanwhile, he's seemingly in no rush, DeSantis, because he's got this Florida legislative session that he's presiding over, and they're getting a lot of stuff done in Tallahassee. He's also on a book tour, and we were talking last week about some of the places that he just happens to be visiting on the book tour, such as Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. Although this weekend he was not just in Florida, his home state, where I saw him on Thursday night. He was in California at, as you point out, the Reagan Library, 
giving a speech about the book. I actually read the book over the weekend. And it's it's interesting. It, there's no real like juicy gossip in there. It's just his life story, autobiography, his approach, a lot of stuff focused on his time as governor and the pandemic and fighting the media and that sort of thing. And that was the thrust of his remarks out at the Reagan Library. Absolutely packed house in Simi Valley and not taking shots back at Donald Trump, but taking shots at the governor out there, Gavin Newsom who seems to spend a lot of his time on social media attacking red states, red state governors. I mean, half a million people have fled from California. Gavin Newsom seems to be busy obsessing over people like Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis, since he was on on Newsom's turf, uh, fired back a little bit to the delight of the crowd over the weekend. But it seems like the governor of Florida, if he's going to get in, which I increasingly suspect he will, he's got his own timeline and seems like he is not clamoring to jump in until he's ready to do so, which I guess the scuttlebutt would be late spring. And Josh, now I've talked my way right into a break, but I want to get your reaction to that and really what looks like a proto-campaign sort of being run by DeSantis. We'll get that reaction from Josh Krasauer right after this very short break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I know you guys got a lot of problems out here, but your governor's very concerned about what we're doing in Florida, so I figured I had to come by. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was Ron DeSantis in California over the weekend. We were just talking about this, Josh, his timing, his strategy. I want to get some of your reaction. Uh, look, I think DeSantis is actually being shrewd on one hand, but also leaving himself vulnerable to these Trump attacks. So they, they are not responding at all. Uh, if you call the DeSantis campaign to even like talk shop about how to respond, how they're responding to Trump, they don't want to say anything. They don't want to telegraph anything about their strategy. And he's been as disciplined and, and evasive, frankly, as possible during this phase of, of the campaign. I don't know. I, I think if you look at the polling, he's been losing ground over the last few weeks. So I'm not sure if that is the best strategy in the moment. And I think eventually they're going to have to react and respond and not just take take the incoming that Trump is throwing at him. At the same time, I think sort of his, 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 his playbook long term for how he views the electorate, how he views the big political map is, is, is pretty smart. Obviously, going to Iowa, New Hampshire and all these early states that are essential to to winning the nomination. But he also spent some time in New York, in California, in Illinois, talking about – you know, being tough, tough on crime, talking about the, the issues that police are not feeling uh, supported uh, in the wake of the Chicago mayor's race, especially. That's very, very timely. And look, blue, in, in the Republican uh, primary math, you've got to win the blue states as well as the red states. And I think DeSantis mm-hmm. is actually quite shrewd in kind of doing the law and order message in some un- unfamiliar uh, areas for, for Republicans, because every a delegate won in California, you're actually going to win a lot of delegates in California if you spend time there in a Republican primary. And if, if you're only appealing to some of the most MAGA conservatives on the political map, you could be vulnerable to a broader coalition that DeSantis could take advantage of. So I, I think on one hand, I think he, he, DeSantis's team needs to do a little bit better job of responding to these attacks from Trump because Trump is defining the terms of the debate right now. But at the same time, I think the big picture, DeSantis is looking, looking pretty savvily at how to get to uh, the delegates, how to win over the states and the delegates necessary to become the nominee in the long term. Yeah, and my guess is he's looking at this as a marathon and not a sprint and saying, look, the time for scrapping with Trump will come. It'll be inevitable. I just don't need to do it yet. I don't need to do it now. 
And my guess is the absolute discipline of silence is absolutely part of a plan, part of a strategy moving forward. And you're right. Trump has really gained uh, nationally in the polling among Republicans in the last couple of weeks. Daily Caller had a piece that also showed DeSantis continues to be quite strong at the state level in a number of important states, not just early states, and, you know, leading Trump head to head or even within a larger field. So it's not like they're in a break glass. Maybe we need to change our plan or strategy moment yet. I think the DeSantis people are are quietly pleased about the way things are setting up. But if you wait, which seems to be the plan until, let's say, June to get in, then you really have to make an impression as a national candidate in a different way that you've been able to make as just, you know, a governor. And yes, he's he's taken all this incoming fire from Democrats and from the media. He's been very heavily tested as the governor of Florida. That is still different than being a national candidate for the presidency. Uh, some different skills potentially involved. And he'll have to prove himself and he'll have less time to adjust if it's rough out of the gate, if he's getting in later. So that's part of the risk that they're taking. We'll see how it shakes out. It's very interesting to watch, at least for now, and we'll see how it goes. Josh Krasauer watching all of it with an eagle eye, as always. Senior politics reporter at Axios. He's also going to become, concurrently, editor-in-chief for Jewish Insider at the end of this month. And Josh, always enjoy your time here. We look forward to next time. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, we caught up with our good friend and colleague twice over, both at Fox News and townhall.com, the great Katie Pavlich. Always fun chatting with her. Today, no exception. Here's a taste of that conversation. It does at least look, again, weird and bad for him to have been in my mind, strangely invested in knocking down the lab leak theory in the early days. And he was getting thanked for that by Peter Daszak, who was literally invested in that theory going away. And then behind the scenes was effectively commissioning a study that set out to disprove the lab leak theory and then was citing that study publicly as if he had nothing to do with it. I I just I'm not an expert on the ethics of scientific journals and research, but This at least raises some questions about what Fauci was up to, what he was revealing, and sort of his role in some of this stuff. Well, the big question is is why he would be so desperate to quash the lab leak theory. And when you look at these emails uh, and emails that have been out uh, previously about his interactions on this topic, it's not that he – called for an investigation to look into it. There was an investigation and there was all the scientific evidence that proved it wasn't from the lab. I mean, he was told in emails from January of 2020, January 2020, that this looked abnormal, that it looked like it had been uh, engineered. And yet he, in these subsequent emails, was saying that we need to go after and essentially destroy the careers of any scientist who dared to question and bring this to the surface. And the question is why? Well, because Anthony Fauci did have an interest in not being held accountable for this pandemic, given that the NIH was giving grants to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they were conducting gain-of-function research, which I call Frankensteining of viruses research, making viruses more virulent to make it more deadly for 
humans. This type of research was actually banned by the Obama administration because it was so deadly, and yet the NIH was still funding it in places overseas. So his interest in this was not being complicit in creating a pandemic. And this is why you saw these very intense back and forth between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci repeatedly about NIH grant funding going to Wuhan and going to this type of um, a type of research. And if you'll remember, Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, who was one of the very few mainstream journalists who was willing to look into this and not just to take it as a Trump talking point, as we saw so much of, reminded everybody that scientists who wanted to get funding for their projects had to go through Anthony Fauci. So if you want to get funding for your project, you have to kiss the ring, you have to say what you're supposed to, and therefore... Um, it was very difficult for the scientific community even to get to the bottom of what actually happened for fear of retribution in their own fields. And that's exactly what we saw. Yeah, there was money involved here. I, I mentioned Peter Daszak and his organization. They were, you know, millions of dollars indebted to Fauci and that gravy train that was running through NIH. And obviously, if there was a, you know, world-ruining pandemic that was escaping from one of these labs, that could affect, you know, all of their research. My full interview with Katie Pavlich, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, part of our free podcast, start to finish every day on demand. That's GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. March Madness is almost upon us. Christina's questions. We'll get to all of that as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. If you're listening on the broadcast... Coming in with the Northwestern University marching band, Go You Northwestern, the fight song. I am very fired up. For a few reasons. Number one, if you live in the Chicagoland area, I am speaking at Northwestern tomorrow night. It is a nonpartisan, cross-ideological group that's having me talk about my career, some of my life experiences, the role of the media in our democracy, and really anything else that might come to mind. And then a lot of Q&A. It's open to the public. It is free. 7 p.m. Central Time tomorrow on the Evanston campus, the main campus at Northwestern. I've posted about it on my social media, at Guy P. Benson, Twitter and Instagram. You can check out the details there and feel free to swing by and say hello. I'm also excited to be back on campus because the Big Ten regular season basketball campaign has come to a close. And for the first time in modern college basketball history, Northwestern finished in second place in the Big Ten Conference with a win last night at Rutgers. Big win, tough place to play. Rutgers has been good this year. Cats were on a three-game losing streak, so we were all getting a little nervous, right? They had, and if you're not a basketball fan, I apologize. I just have to brag. We never get this. It never happens to us, ever. Until 2017, Northwestern was the only major college conference team that had never made the tournament. March Madness, we'd never been in it, ever. For like almost 100 years of basketball. In fact, Northwestern hosted the first ever Final Four. Did not participate, not even in the tournament. 
Then we finally had a breakthrough season in 2017, and then it's just been a disappointment ever since then, like back to the bad old days. And then this season, this squad was predicted by the experts to finish in 13th or 14th place in a 14-team league. That was the consensus, including shared by me, by the way. I remember what happened last year. Not good. Then two of our best players transferred. It's like, oh, boy, cupboards bare. This is going to be a rough season. And they have now set a school record with 12 conference wins. They're a lock for the NCAA tournament. They've been a lock for a couple weeks now because they went on a five-game winning streak. They beat number one Purdue on Super Bowl Sunday, then came right back out and beat Indiana, a ranked team at home, then blew the doors off of Iowa. And all the experts at that point were like, okay, never mind 13th place. They're for real. They're going to make the tournament. Then they lost a couple games, and all of our fans are like, oh, here we go again. Is our annual losing streak happening at the worst possible time at the end of the season? So last night was a very big game. I was nervous all day. I could barely bring myself to watch the game. I would have to, like, change the channel every so often. I was too nervous. Then I would go back. I watched the end of the game, finally for good. And we actually had a good number of fans at Rutgers. It was such a big game. You could hear them on the broadcast. I think we had that from Big Ten Network. You can hear the Purple Faithful in the background. Oh, we got a Let's Go Cats chant in the rack. And the New Jersey Rucker fans booing, obviously, there. They didn't like to hear that in their building. But big win, defying all expectations. So now Northwestern has what's known as a double bye in the Big Ten tournament. I was trying to explain this to Christine earlier. There's so many tournaments and games. We'll bring her in here in just a second to try to help her. But before the big dance, March Madness, bracketology, all of that, with Selection Sunday, the announcements of who gets in and the seedings and all of that, that's this coming Sunday. Before then, there are the conference tournaments. So all the Big Ten teams, all 14 of them compete. And if you finish in the top four positions in the conference, you don't have to play on Wednesday or on Thursday of this tournament. Your first game is on Friday. Then you'd have to win Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to win the whole thing. Northwestern has never qualified for a double bye. Not even close. Not even close. So I was joking on social media last night, like, what is this double bye exactly? We are completely unfamiliar as Northwestern fans with this concept. So they get to watch some of the other teams, the lower seedings, battle it out. And then the Cats will play on Friday, the winner of Illinois-Penn State, which, I mean, both of those are tough matchups for us. So I'm not getting cocky or overconfident or anything like that. It's a tough slog. There's a lot of parity in the Big Ten. But for the Cats to finish in second place is just astounding. And it was one of those things. Did you see, I guess, over the weekend, some of the planets aligned so you could see them with the naked eye in the sky, the night sky? I think it was like Jupiter and one of the other planets. Some folks were pointing it out and, some of our friends were posting photos of it. The planets aligned this past weekend. And then yesterday, in order for Northwestern, because there was a log jam with a lot of teams who had similar records, if not exactly the same record, and we had rooting interest. There were like five other games. It was like, okay, we want these four teams to lose. And as the day unfolded, 
and I was flying back from Florida. I'm keeping track of the scores, and like, boom, down goes the first team that we needed to lose. You know, Maryland loses, and then later on, Iowa loses, and then later on, Michigan loses, and everything was coming up Wildcats. But it would all be for naught if we had lost the game last night. Rather than finishing in second place, if we had lost that game last night, we would have finished in seventh place. One game made the difference. And being a beaten down, like, soul-crushed Northwestern basketball fan, I was just thinking, okay, we're going to lose this game. We always lose this kind of game. There's so much at stake. There's no way we win, right? But, no, this team's different. They've defied every expectation. I've got to have some faith in they won. So, obviously, I'm very excited, devoting a lot of time to this. And I'm going to be on campus tomorrow. I can't wait to talk to these kids. Like, they have no idea how lucky they are. I would have sacrificed perhaps some sort of internal organ as an undergrad to have this type of team. Just never happened. And they've been selling out. The student sections have been awesome. Like, it's, it's a special time. So I'm looking forward to that. And then Christine was trying to ask me, so next week, not this current week, but next week the tournament starts, and she's like, are you going to go see basketball? Like, what's the plan? I'm like, yeah, I think so. She's like, well, where are you going and when? I said, I don't know. That's the point. We don't know until Sunday, Selection Sunday. There's like eight different cities that we might go to. It's like upstate New York, North Carolina, Alabama, uh, Orlando, Columbus, Ohio, Des Moines, Iowa, Denver, Colorado, Sacramento, California. Those, There we go. Those are the eight possibilities. And we won't know until six days from now where we're headed, and then I'll just have to scramble and buy tickets and get a hotel room and all of it. And so Christina's like, well, how's that going to work for the show? And, like, what, what time will the game be at, and where will you be? Will you have your equipment? I said, we'll just have to figure it out. She's like, so there will be March Madness on this show next week. I said, yes, there will. I'm really rooting against – I actually probably shouldn't even say this out loud. I'm rooting against Sacramento. That is the farthest, most difficult trip for me. And now that I've said it, I'm going to manifest it. It's going to be Sacramento, isn't it? <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. All right, Christine. Uh, you've put up with a lot of this. You, you truly don't care about basically anything that I've just not said. Not true. Not true at all. Dan, have I not been asking um, She's a lot been of very, questions? very curious, Christine, over here about all of this. Okay. So she is, and she Dan, is... you're, like, you're, I'm speaking your language, right? Like <laughs> yes. you're following all of this. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Wyatt is just shaking his head, is like, how does an adult think like this? Doesn't he have anything better to do with his life? Can't he just read the Wall Street Journal and be fully fulfilled? That's just not how I am. All right, Christine, so what are your big curiosities here as we try to plan next week, even though we literally can't because it's up to a random group of experts and adults in some conference room? I think, where are they, in Chicago or Indianapolis, wherever they are? I think it's Indy. And they will just, like, hand down from on high what seed the Wildcats get and where we're headed and who our opponent will be and whether the game's on Friday or on Thursday and what time it is. I mean, there's so many factors I drive myself crazy thinking about. Yeah, this is great for a producer of a national talk radio show. Yes, especially one who gets a little, uh, little panicky, flustered, and and don't forget, it's just me and you next week for most of the, for the start of this. Dan is off, and why it's off. So it's me and you alone on the show, and then we have to factor this in. And what I said to you was, bring your buddy with you, me. 
Yeah, you were saying you need a basketball buddy, and I thought you were like, oh, are you going to travel to the games with someone? I'm like, yeah, some of my friends might be going, and then I didn't realize you were talking about you. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, we're going to be short-staffed anyway, so we really need you holding down the fort, right, and, and doing all of the things. And we, So we can't have you distracted by your new passion for college basketball. So <laughs> I'm not rejecting this idea. It's just, you know, it's for the show is what I'm saying, Christine. Now, I need to start watching this madness of March, but it starts next week. For, for You're going to – what's important for you to know is what happened – the madness of March. I say it wrong? It's March Madness. Oh. Why is I mean, Dan close. laughing at me? It's just – it's a funny way of putting it. It's like someone who's totally foreign to it would say it that way, which you are. So the big thing for your planning purposes is Selection Sunday, CBS – Next Sunday evening, I believe it's 6 p.m. Eastern, they reveal all of the teams in the tournament and who is in what region and what seed they are and where they're going. That will then determine my bookings in terms of, like, flights and hotels and then our bookings for the show and the timing of stuff. I have a question for you. Um, yeah. Like, I'm imagining, like, a Yolanda Vega-type person on Sunday night, like, you know, with the balls, <laughs> and then you pick out a, a, a ball. That's, and it's by like, the way, just for people who aren't from the New York area and aren't familiar with Yolanda Vega, she was the New York lotto woman for a very long time. And, and the first ball up is 12, like that woman. The greatest. I have a bobblehead of Yolanda. I thought I, w- I wanted to be Yolanda when, when I was younger. I used to do an imitation of her. My parents thought it was hysterical. But anyway, okay. that is that what it is? Like, will they just say, pick a name out of a hat and be like, Northwestern's no. going? And No, no, no. It's, it's based on you have to earn your way into this tournament, and it's the best 68 teams in the country that get selected. There's the first four, so it's really a, a field of 64 after you get past those first couple of games. Uh, and there's an entire committee of people who weigh every team's resume based on their wins and losses, who they beat, who they lost to. It's actually very complex, and they decide, okay, who gets in, and then the very best teams are seated like, you know, number one or number two in their region, and then teams at the bottom, you know, 15, 16, and it gets matched up correspondingly. So that's how the brackets work. Have you never filled out a bracket? No. No. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe that will need to change. We'll Some people do it, it with no experts. Yeah, well, Dan, you know, he's kind of making me feel dumb back here because I said this seems so, you know, complicated. And he's like, it's actually very simple. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so basically you're calling me dumb. Well, there's conference championships and then there's the tournament. That, that wasn't, it wasn't that simple, what Guy was just saying. <laughs> and also conference tournaments. And then the March Madness, like, that's also not helpful to her because conference tournaments probably mean nothing to her. So you have to sort of very slowly explain the differences between it. It is, if you don't follow sports, it can be a little bit much. But there are people who fill out brackets based on, like, the team colors or the uniforms that they like better and just make their brackets that way. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But that's one approach Christine might take if she fills out a bracket this year because now she's actually going to have some investment because it affects the planning of this show. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week. But obviously I am stoked out of my mind. Not only the best regular season in Northwestern basketball modern history, but one that came out of nowhere. So go Cats. Heading to Chicago tomorrow up in Evanston tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Central. Come say hi on campus for my event. 
And, of course, back here on the radio tomorrow from Evanston and then D.C. the rest of the week. We will talk to you then. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great night. It is The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.